So turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 4. Just so that you would know, my hope is to complete or conclude our time somewhere between 9 and 9.15 is what I am planning. Uh, I've been told that most of you are here until 10 o'clock. No. You're here until evening. Just, uh, you're here until 9 at least, I would say. So uh, let me encourage you to, to participate. Uh, be an encouragement to fellow 128ers. You're not here as an audience. You're, you're a participant. Uh, you are involved in what's happening. And we're glad that you're here tonight. So we begin uh, in Ruth chapter 4. We've been making our way through this short yet significant book for the last four weeks. Uh, short because it's merely 40, uh, four p- uh, chapters and significant because of the impact that the individuals will have in its immediate context and then in the long term, even unto eternity. So today we come to the climax of the narrative, Ruth chapter 4. Just a quick recap before we dive into chapter 4. The story, as we've been sharing, is set in the context of the period of the judges. Uh, The period is marked by the off-repeated refrain, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Some of you probably saying that's exactly the culture that we live in and you wouldn't be too wrong. But what the refrain is telling us is that there was no physical king in Israel but it's also telling us that God's chosen people had abandoned him and they no longer considered him as someone who is supreme over their lives. He's no longer their king. Yahweh was rejected as the king. It is in that context that the story is set. It's in this period that there is a famine in the land, and the story doesn't focus on all the families, but on one family, a family of four. Elimelech is the father, the dad, whose name means my God is king. His wife, Naomi, means pleasant. Then there are two sons that they have, Mahalon, which means sickly, and Kilian, which means pining. And instead of remaining in Bethlehem and repenting, Elimelech chooses to uproot his family and go to the land where Yahweh was not known and neither worshipped. That is the land of Moab. And within a few days of reaching Moab, Elimelech dies. His sons then end up marrying two Moabite women by by the name Ruth and Orpah, who are very likely Chemosh worshippers, a worshipper of the god of the Moabites called Chemosh. Ten years roll by, and eventually the two sons also die, leaving not one but three widows behind. So there is pain in the family. There's a pain of not being among your people, uh, your immediate sons and husband, And there is the pain of having no people that are your own because she's in a foreign land. And so after hearing that the Lord had visited his people, Naomi decides to pack her bags and head back to Bethlehem. And after an intense discussion that's recorded for us in chapter 1 with Orpah and Ruth, Naomi decides to take Ruth with her. Now that is a sign of Ruth's conversion. Now that was act 1 takes us from Bethlehem to Moab and then brings us back to Bethlehem, right as we are told at the end of verse 
uh, chapter 1, right at the beginning of the barley harvest, which is somewhere around early April. That's Act 1. Chapter 1, verse 1 to verse 22. Act 2 begins with the last verse in chapter 1, takes place in the fields of Bethlehem. Act 2 takes place in the fields of Bethlehem as Ruth expresses a desire to work so that she and Naomi may have something to eat. And then we are told she happened to be in the field of Boaz, who is a close relative. And we learn there that in the life of a believer, there are no accidents. Nothing just happens by chance. We also learn that God may not be seen as someone who is actively working, but he is working to accomplish his plans and purposes. We also see that Boaz deals kindly and generously with Ruth. And then the season comes to an end, but we don't see Boaz taking any initiative on his part to advance the relationship with Ruth. And we noted that he had good reasons not to do that. We, last, we saw that last, last week. That brought us to, to the close of Act 2. In Act 3, which we looked at last week, we learned that it is now up to Naomi to come up with a plan to seek the security of her daughter-in-law. That is, to seek a husband for her. And she guides Naomi, uh, Ruth to convey to Boaz her intentions of marrying her. Marrying him. Ruth has given ample evidence of her conversion so far. And in chapter 3 at the beginning she gives us one more evidence uh, of her conversion by trusting in her mother-in-law's plan. By listening to someone who is a godly woman in her life. Uh, what is the plan? The plan is to go to the threshing floor to make, uh, without making yourself known to Boaz. And then, in the darkness of the night, uncover his feet when he sleeps. Uh, by the way, as we learned last week, that is not prescriptive. That's not telling us what we should do in our case. That's describing to us what happened. And Naomi tells her that that will convey to him what needs to be conveyed. And that is exactly what happens. God has prepared Boaz's heart for this. He gets the message and he agrees to redeem Ruth. That is the end of Act 3. And so today we come to Act 4. If I had to summarize tonight's lesson uh, and put it into a theme format, it would be this. As God brings his redemptive work to a culmination, to the climax, we can be confident, we as believers can be confident that, we'll, that he will richly reward the loyalty and love of his faithful followers that he will richly reward the loyalty and love of his faithful followers, sometimes in ways that transcend their lifetime. I will keep coming back to this theme to remind us that that's what is happening in this particular chapter. And so I've titled our, chapter, our lesson for tonight, The Kinsman Redeemer. That's the entire theme of this book. The Kinsman Redeemer. We begin with Act 4, Scene one, which is the redemption of Ruth as, as we consider the first 13 verses. Act 4, scene 1, the redemption of Ruth. Notice with me verse, four, verse 1, chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. And so he said, <coughs> excuse me, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. 
he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Now, first of all, we see the court is convened. You see, Boaz wastes no time after his promise to Ruth. He had told Ruth, remember in chapter 3, verse 13, when morning comes, he will approach the close relative, and that is exactly what he does. The word there that begins chapter 4, the word now, conveys more than a change of, in the act. The force of the word is straight away. Straight away he went to the place. Now, although that is not the main point of the story, you can't help but notice that Boaz is a man of his word. He is a trustworthy man. And this is a singles group. And so in the context of a spouse, a godly man, a godly woman, is one whose word you can trust. A godly man, a godly woman, is a man, is a woman whose word you can trust. And so Boaz heads straight to the gate. The gate was not just a place for entry and exit, as we think of gates today. Gates in those times was actually the, the town center, the place where important uh, business of the city was conducted. The leaders of the city generally, known as the elders, met there to, meet, to make decisions for the city and even pass judgment. If there was buying and selling taking place, for example, there, there was a place to sit and there was a place to hear the case. And then if it's, it was something that involved passing a judgment, uh, the decision of the elders was binding on the people. So it was an important place. And early in the morning before shops opened and the routine of the day convened, Boaz heads straight to the gate and waits there for the close relative. And as has happened in the past, the close relative happened to pass happened to pass by just then. Imagine someone orally sharing this story. Imagine the narrator sharing this story and winking at his audience when sharing this part. It just happened, you know, that this close relative was passing by. And so what does Boaz do? He calls out this man. Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Notice we are not given a name of this individual. It's, It's ironic, isn't it? In a in a book, and then in this chapter that is filled with names. Notice at the end from verse 18 to verse 22 is filled with 10 names. In a chapter and a book that is filled with names, we are not given a name of this relative. The Hebrew word translated friend is actually a certain man. The Hebrew word is actually a word that rhymes. It's peloni almoni. Peloni almoni. A certain man. Or so and so. Or as some commentator said, a John Doe. I don't know who that is, but apparently that's a very common name. I, have, I haven't met any John Doe's, but apparently this is a John Doe, a common so-and-so. Peloni Almoni. So he heard Boaz's call and he joined the meeting. And as was the requirement and the custom, there needed to be witnesses to this transaction. So notice verse 2. So we have 10 elders that Boaz invites them to join. And the same request is made of them. And they too oblige. And so the stage is now set for the transaction to be discussed. The court is convened. That takes us to the right is surrendered. The right that is surrendered. Boaz begins by providing the context 
to the transaction is he directly addresses Peloni Almoni, the mistress so-and-so. Naomi has come back, he says, in verse 3, and the land of Moab, from the land of Moab earlier this year, and as his widow, she would like the closest relative of her husband to have the right to take ownership of the land that belonged to Elimelech. Now, according to the Mosaic law, the land was never to leave the family. That was the intention. The land should never leave the family. It was permanently given to a family, and the institution of the Redeemer, the Goel, was designed to prevent this from happening. As regards to the inheritance, that was the law as regards to the land, but as regards to inheritance, in Numbers chapter 27, verse 9 to 11, we are told that the inheritance first passes from the, from the father to the son. Now, if there were no sons in the family, then it passed to one of the daughters or the daughters. If there were no daughters, then it passed to the man's brothers. If he had no brothers, it passed to the man's dad's brothers or man's, man's father's brothers. And if even that was non-existent, he was non-existent, then it passed to the nearest relative. So sons, daughters, the brother of the man, the brother of the father's, uh, man's father, and if none of them were existing, then it passed on to a closest relative, near relative. That's where we are with this particular text. But who do you see missing in this pedigree? Did you notice that there's one individual that is missing? Not a trick question. Wife, the widow is missing, isn't it? The widow is missing. And so all Naomi was doing was saying, look, here is the land that my husband owned. Can a close relative claim ownership of this land? She didn't, the word there translated as sell is actually not the right word. It is essentially, she's asking someone to claim ownership of that land. She's not selling that land. And according to the Mosaic law, you could keep the land until the 49th year. And in the 50th year, which is called the Jubilee year, it went back to the original owner. And so Boaz is acting like a middleman to make this transaction happen. But notice a few things that Boaz does. He draws the connection between him, Mr. So-and-so, and Elimelech. And he says, that was our brother, verse 3. Then he gives Mr. So-and-so who was a close relative, the first right of refusal. Notice verse 4. He says, claim ownership of the land before all of the elders here. Redeem it. But if you don't claim the ownership of the land, if you don't redeem it, let me know, because there is no one but you to redeem it. And then he slips that last line in there. And I am after you. End of verse 4. You have the first right. I want you to have the right to redeem this land. And this was an honorable thing to do so that the land did not go to someone else. To redeem something was an honorable thing to do. It was what the law had commanded. And Boaz has made his case. And thinking from Mr. So-and-so's perspective, Peloni Almoni, there was nothing to lose and everything to gain. He is claiming ownership of the land. Now, depending on how many years were left until the year of the Jubilee, there may be 20, 30 years that he can hope to reap from the land. Uh, this was a risk-free opportunity 
with really unlimited potential. And this was no brainer for Mr. So-and-so. Yes, yes, he says, I will redeem it. Notice at the end of verse 4. I will redeem it. I will do it. I'm happy to, happy to oblige. Thank you very much. Now, if Ruth was in the audience or listening to this conversation, can you imagine what must have happened to her? Her heart must have sunk. Oh, no, this is, this is not what I'd hoped for. If you were listening to the story for the first time, your heart would sink too. This is not what you're expecting the story to take direction towards. And then it is as if Boaz then springs a surprise. Notice verse 5. He does not mention that before, but now he does. All right. If you receive the land, you claim ownership to the land, you will also need to claim ownership of Ruth, the Moabitess. You can almost hear him emphasize the Moabitess part. The widow of the deceased, he says. You need to marry her, and you are to do that in order to raise the name of the deceased on his inheritance. Now, the mention of marriage to Ruth, verse 5, notice what the closest relative does. His balloon is really deflated. Verse 6, I, I, I cannot do that. I cannot redeem it then. Because if I do that, he says, verse 6, I will jeopardize my own inheritance. That is, I will be obligated to treat the children that will come out of this marriage the same as my own children. So if I have $100 to give to my children, I will need to also distribute it equally if I have children from Ruth. That's what it means. And therefore, he says, you go ahead and redeem it. I surrender my right of redemption because I cannot redeem it. You see, Peloni Almoni wants the benefits of redemption, but he does not want the responsibilities that come with redemption. He was happy to take the land, but he's not happy to take the responsibility that comes with the land. He wants the profits, but he does not want to put in the hard work. He wants his name in the news, but does not want to make any efforts. No wonder his name is not mentioned. He has no identity. Mr. So and so. And at this point, before we begin in verse 7, there's a brief pause in the story. As the narrator of the story takes the time to explain a custom, he takes the time to explain the custom basically because when the book was written, the custom may not have been in existence. And he also takes the time because we may not understand why what is happening is happening. Notice what he says, verse 7. Uh, this, this, there was a custom, he says. And it was a custom related to redemption and exchange of land. In order to finalize the deal, And the man to convey his agreement to the deal, removed his sandal and gave it to the man whom the right was surrendered to. It indicated a transfer of right. Notice, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. Now you might say, why a sandal? I mean, he's one sandal short as he leaves from there. And you would be right. But here is the significance of that. Sandal, as you know, is what you wear on your feet. It was a footwear. And what it signifies is that the land on which I would have walked with these sandals and claimed as my own the right to that land, 
I give to you. And so what, that's what the relative does in verse 8. Buy it for yourself, he says, and he removes his sandal. That brings us thirdly to the agreement that is finalized. Verse 9 and verse 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, your witnesses today that I have brought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Mahalon. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Mahalon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. I say to them, you are witnesses today that, that I have brought the hand, land of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and belonged to his sons Kilian and Mahalon. And moreover, I have the land, along with the land, I also acquired, he says, Ruth the Moabitess. <coughs> and for the first time, we are told whose wife she was, says the widow of Mahalon, uh, to be my wife, he says, and I'm going to do this because I want to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And so the name of the disease will not be cut off from the brothers or from the court of the birth of his place, and you are witnesses to this today. And what he is doing then is, he, is that he's finalizing the deal. He is doing his part to close the deal. So what is the response from the elders? Fourthly, the blessing is pronounced. Notice verse 11. To his last statement that you are witnesses, they wholeheartedly agree. Our English language uses three words. We are witnesses. But the Hebrew has only one word. Witnesses. That's right. You are right. We are witnesses. And then they proceed to pronounce a blessing. Notice verse 11. All the people who were in the court and the elders said... We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom build the house, both of whom build the house of Israel, and may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman." Notice the series of blessings. First, they begin by invoking the name of Yahweh. May, first of all, may the Lord, may Yahweh make the woman who is coming into your home, that is Ruth, may Yahweh make her like Rachel and Leah. And so if you don't know who Rachel and Leah is, Rachel and Leah, they are sisters who are married to the same man. They are married to Jacob. Their stories mentioned from Genesis 29 onwards. And they are the one who built the house of Israel, which means the sons that came from them or their maids ended up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. And so the blessing is that may your house be like that. Can you imagine? This is a Gentile woman. This is a Moabite. And they are pronouncing a blessing that was expressly something that was focused on two women from whom the tribes of Israel came. Next, they say, secondly, may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah. Uh, this is the third time the same word wealth is used. In chapter 2, verse 1, Boaz is actually introduced to us as one who is a wealthy man. 
And then chapter 3 verse 11, Ruth is described as a woman of excellence. And we understood that the word may mean wealth or material prosperity, but as we have seen the last two times, it indicates the character of a person. The indication is to the children that will come from Boaz and Ruth. As you and Ruth are man and a woman of excellence, may the children that come from you also be men and women of excellence. Number three, may you become famous in Bethlehem. May your name be known in Bethlehem. May you become famous, but you can't help but think of the nameless close relative that we just met. Unlike him, may your name be known. And then number four, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring, which the Lord will give you by this woman. Now, wait a minute. Who is Perez? House of Perez? Who Tamar bore to Judah? Who is Perez? Who is Tamar? Who is Judah? Why are they mentioned here? Well, Judah is, of course, we know that he's Jacob's son and a brother to 11 other men, and all of whom then ended up becoming the 12 tribes of Israel. That we know. But Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Now, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 38. Genesis chapter 38. This tells us, the reference to Tamar and Judah and, and Perez tells us that the writer has Genesis 38 in mind as he's writing this chapter. Tamar was Ur's wife. Where do we find that? Verse 6, now Judah take, took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar is Ur's wife. But Ur, as we look down, verse 7, and uh, verse seven, we are told Ur was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so what did the Lord do? The Lord took his life, verse 7. And so according to what eventually became known as the Leveret Law, when a brother died leaving a widow, the next brother was to take his widow as his wife to raise an offspring. There was an understanding of that law, but it was not codified we got that codified once Moses comes into the picture, but there was a general understanding of what the law required. Notice verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go, to your, go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as her brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But what did he do? Notice verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did, verse 10, but what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. And so he took his life also. When the father found that out, Judah then told Tamar, why don't you go live with your father for some time and wait for Shelah, who is his third son, to grow up. But when he had grown up, Judah never gave Sheila to Tamar. And so what does Tamar do? She deceives her father-in-law into thinking that she was a prostitute and ends up sleeping with her father-in-law. And out of that union come twins. One of those twins was Perez. Now why mention all of this? Why go into detail of all of this? Here's why. I have three reasons to mention this. Firstly, Genesis 38 
is about Judah and events in his life. And Ruth chapter 4 is about Boaz, who is a great, 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 great grandchild of Judah. So first of all, they belong to the same family. But secondly, and this we find from Genesis 49, remember when Jacob is with his son, Genesis 49 verse 10 tells us that he tells his sons, specifically Judah, he tells Judah, Judah, the scepter will not depart from you. Uh, that is, through your line would come a king and a kingdom. And he says, not the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh, that is the Messiah, the peaceful one come, comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49, 10 to 12. So what Jacob is t- uh, telling Judah is that a king will come from Judah and throughout that king will come and through that king will come a king of kings, the anointed one. And so it's important to know who the descendants of Judah are and through which of his descendants a king would come. That's why I went into the detail I went. But there's a third and an important reason of why Genesis is 38 is invoked here. You see, in Genesis 38 list, uh, is a list of a litany of men, Ur, Onan, Shelah, and even Judah. But what is common amongst all of these men and what is common between all of them is all of them failed in their designated roles as redeemers. They messed it up. They they blew it. They ignored or rejected their role as a leader. And to that list, now you can add Peloni, Almoni as well. All of these men have failed to live to what was expected for them as a kinsman redeemer. And in the midst of all of these men who have failed in their role as a kinsman redeemer, Boaz rises up to be that one man who fulfills the role of a kinsman redeemer. And so from being a kinsman redeemer to becoming the kinsman redeemer as he accomplishes the redemption of Ruth. And so the writer of Ruth has Genesis 38 in his mind as he has all of these failures of men who fail to live up to what their role was. Ah, But now, redemption has come. As we see a one man taking on the role of a kinsman redeemer. It brings us to the last text, which is verse 13. The redemption is complete, or the redemption is complete. Notice verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And so Boaz took Ruth, a way of saying he marries Ruth. And just in case that is not clear, the text tells us she became his wife. And he slept with her. And then the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. What an astonishing turnaround of events as you look just at the last few months. You know, a period of nine months is captured in that one verse. And if you think about it, just over a one, one year ago, Ruth perhaps was still in Moab with her mother-in-law, uh, perhaps with Mahalon and Naomi. We don't know whether she was still worshipping Chemosh at that time. We are not told when actually st- she started worshipping Yahweh, but she gives us the first evidence of her conversion in that chapter 1 when, when Naomi was ready to come back to Bethlehem. Uh, she tells Naomi 
uh, don't ask me to remain in Moab, because where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people, my people. Your God, my God. I will die where you die, and there I will be buried also. What a tremendous statement of commitment. What a statement of internal change being expressed in outward actions. You know, Ruth's redemption with what happens in verse 13 is now complete. She is married to Boaz, a man of excellence, and God has blessed her with a son. Notice also in verse 13, we are told that Yahweh did something. And we are told this the second time in this book. The first time Yahweh did something was actually uh, Ruth chapter 1 verse 6 where we are told that Yahweh visited his people in giving them food. What they had lacked as a family because of the famine, as a people of God, he gave it to them. He gave them food. And now we are told Yahweh enabled her to conceive. Ruth's husband, Mahalon, had died. Her brother-in-law had died. and Her father-in-law had died. But now God gave Naomi and Ruth a new life. Don't also miss the fact that for the 10 years that Ruth was married to Merlone, she did not conceive. And now it's the very life giver himself, the one who has the authority to give life and take life, he is the one who opens Ruth's womb, who enables her to conceive and then she gives birth to a son. Let me remind you of the theme again. As God brings his redemptive work to a culmination, we can be confident that he will richly reward the loyalty and love of faithful followers, sometimes in ways that transcend their lifetime. That brings us to Act 4, Scene 2, as we see the redemption of Naomi. Verse 14 to verse 17. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. Notice what the women do. The women that we are introduced to in chapter 1, verse 19, who are unable to recognize Naomi when she comes back to Bethlehem, this time they have no problem recognizing Naomi and affirming God's hand of redemption on her. And they too pronounce a blessing on her. Notice verse 14. Blessed be the name of the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today. God has not forgotten you, Naomi. Perhaps you're sitting here, uh, perhaps in a difficult circumstance, and you're wondering, has God forgotten me? What a great reminder this is. God has not forgotten Naomi, and God has not forgotten you. Naomi, you had accused God of dealing bitterly with you, but look what he has done. He has not left you without a goel, a redeemer. 
What an astonishing turnaround, just like we saw in the life of Ruth, now we see in the life of Naomi. Uh, firstly, if you remember, she went to Moab without her hus- with her husband, but she comes back without her husband. Uh, she went to Moab with her two sons, but she comes back without her two sons. As a widow in the 12th century BC, you had nothing to look forward to. You were done with life. All you had to look forward to was a life of poverty. And out of such a dire circumstance, God first gave you a daughter-in-law, a convert from the land of Moab, then he brought you back to Bethlehem, and then he brought Boaz into your life, the one who redeemed Ruth, and then blessed them with a son who will carry the name of your family in the future. God has indeed redeemed you, Ruth, or Naomi. Notice, secondly, they say, may his name become famous in Israel. A similar blessing is pronounced on the son as is pronounced by the elders on Boaz. May his name be known is in Israel. And oh, how that came to be true as we look at the genealogy. May he also be to, a rest- to you a restorer of life and a sustainer in your old age. You thought you had nothing to live for and now God has given you a grandson. It's, it's as if God has infused a new life into you. In your old age, he will be your sustainer, your helper. Notice God has also given you a daughter-in-law who loves you. And notice the worth that is placed on a daughter-in-law or a daughter or daughter-in-law in this case. She is better to you than seven sons. You read scriptures and fascinated with numbers, you know seven is a number of perfection. You lost two sons, Naomi. But what, God, but what did God do for you? God has given you a daughter-in-law who loves you and who is worth more than seven sons to you. And then you can just imagine Naomi taking this little child as she lays him in her lap and she begins to nurse him. That is, she begins to care for him. She becomes his nanny. She provides comfort and support to Ruth in taking care of this son. What a tremendously joyful occasion as you think of the circumstance from which they came from in chapter 1. Once again, perhaps after a number of years, perhaps 20, 30 years, where Mahalon and Kilion may have been little children, the cooing of a child is heard once there was despair and really bitterness. The house is, you can imagine, brimming with joy and laughter where once sadness and discouragement was pervasive. Where once there was a stench of death as she lost her two sons and her husband, now there is the freshness of a new life. Oh, what a turnaround this has been. Ah, but we are not done yet. We are told that the neighbor women give him a name. You're like, what? I struggled so much to give a name to my child and here somebody else is giving a name. Well, essentially what they're doing is they're recognizing a name. They're not giving a name. And notice what they say. A son has been born to Naomi. You say, what? I thought it was Ruth. Yes. Yes, you're right. It was Ruth who conceived and delivered. But considering that Boaz married Ruth as a kinsman redeemer, redeeming the family of Elimelech, this is also considered a son of Naomi. What is the son named? The son is named Obed. 
which means a servant of God. Elimelech means my God is king. Well, the name is great, but he didn't really live up to that name. And now we have one who is named a servant of God. He is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, the greatest king of Israel. The theme, as God brings his redemptive work to a climax, a culmination, we can be confident that he will richly reward the loyalty and love of his faithful followers, sometimes in ways that transcend their lifetime. That brings us to Act 4 and then the epilogue of this act, the redemption of the nations. As you look at that list, you're wondering where am I getting that from. Well, let's read the list first, and then we'll understand what it means. Notice verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Uh, to Perez was born Hezron. To Hezron was born Ram. To Ram, Aminadab. To Aminadab was born Nahashon. To Nahashon was born Salmon. To Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. The genealogy begins with Perez, the son of Judah. And it culminates in David, the king. If you number the list, if you count the number of individuals mentioned there, there are 10 men, and it covers a period of between 800 to 850 years. So we know that some generations have been skipped. In fact, we know for sure that some generations have been skipped because we are told in the genealogy in Matthew's gospel that Salmon was married to Rahab, the prostitute, who lived during the time of Joshua, which was around 1400 B.C., and Boaz is mentioned as someone who was fathered by Salmon. But we know that even within that genealogy, some generations are skipped. So what is meant is he was of the lineage of Salmon. Notice, secondly, the period of the judges is now connected to the monarchy. It's as if Ruth is the bridge between judges and 1 Samuel. Even though Saul was the first king, yet we know that he disobeyed God and he did not give any evidence of his faith. So in a sense, David, the man after God's own heart, is really the first true king of Israel, the kind of king that God was pleased with. And so the text acts as a bridge between these two periods, the period of the judges and the period of the kings. And thirdly, we have to ask, all right, we get it that David was king, but so were the others. Why single out David? Because it was through David, as I mentioned before, that the Messiah would ultimately come. Turn with me to 2 Samuel <coughs> chapter 7, verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. If you know your Bibles, you will know that this is the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. Notice verse 12. This is God talking to King David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and then notice, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In a sense, you can say verse 12 is focused perhaps on King Solomon, but really verse 13, as you look at it, Someone's kingdom is forever, that is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's why it's important to know where is David coming from. All of this to say the story of Ruth is recorded to tell us what happened in the life of one family. But it was ultimately recorded because Naomi and Ruth and Boaz and David were all a part of a greater plan. The plan to bring redemption to you and to me. That's why this text is so important. You know, as God brings his redemptive work to a climax, a culmination, we can be confident that he will richly reward the loyalty and love of his faithful followers, sometimes in ways that transcend their lifetime. So what can we learn from the last four weeks? Well, first of all, there is hope even in the midst of a hopeless situation. Naomi's and Ruth's situation was a hopeless one. There was nothing to look forward to. Even in the midst of that, we see God bringing out hope in the midst of a hopeless situation. I don't know what circumstance you may be in right now, or perhaps have just been through one. Can I remind you from the book of Ruth, that there is hope in the midst of a hopeless circumstance, a hopeless situation. But also a reminder that this book is a reminder that God cares for his own. He providentially and sovereignly cares for his home. There's nothing that happens by accident or by chance. No, God, behind everything that is going on, God is sovereignly, and providentially working out his plans and purposes. All things we are reminded by Paul work together for good for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. It's not just a verse that we memorize, but it's a verse that is actually true and lived out in the life of a believer. Thirdly, as you look at this story, the book is titled Ruth, But if you look at the entire four chapters, there are certain portions in the book where Ruth emerges as the main character. But then there are times when you see Naomi as the main character. And then there are times such as this chapter and even the earlier two chapters where Boaz seems to be the main character. But the fact be told, as you look at all of these four chapters, God is working behind the scenes to bring about what he has always planned and purpose. So in that sense, he is the hero of this story. And can I remind you, he's the hero of your story. Anyone sitting here saying, I deserve to be saved? No, you're not. As you look at your own life, as you look how patient God has been with you, As you look at the circumstances that he has placed in your life, I do not for even one moment take it for granted that you all are here tonight because God brought you here. There is a reason that you're even listening to what God's word has to say to you. But it's a great reminder, this story is, that God is always the hero. He's the hero of this story. And as you live your life faithfully towards him, He is the hero of your story as well. Fourthly, this book is a great reminder that Christ is the one who is our kinsman redeemer. 
Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, says this about the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He says, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Luke chapter 1 verse 68. As great a redeemer Boaz was to Ruth, at the end of the day he died. But his life really pointed to the ultimate kinsman redeemer who was perfect and who is always alive. Who is this redeemer? Who is a redeemer really to begin with? A redeemer is the one who secures the release of another person from harm or oppression or enslavement. A redeemer restores the rights and freedoms lost. And that is exactly what our Lord has done for us. As someone who are born sinners, we are enslaved to sin. We were in darkness and under the dominion of darkness. But God became man, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he rescued us, Colossians 1.13, from the domain of darkness and transferred us, delivered us into God's kingdom. His kingdom of light. See, Jesus redeemed us by giving us his life as a ransom. And his death on the cross paid the ransom price to set sinners free from the bondage of sin. Uh, Jesus, you see, redeemed us by taking the curse upon himself, uh, one whose blood was shed for you and for me, the one without blemish or defect. He is the very fulfillment of the scriptures. He is the very redeemer that you and I have. What a redeemer. Let me stop and ask, is he your redeemer? Have you repented of your sins and placed your trust in the only one who can redeem your life of sin and hopelessness and give you a new life and a new purpose. If he is your redeemer already, he deserves all our praise and worship and a life that is fully committed to his plans and purposes. Christ then is the kinsman redeemer. Another lesson that we can learn from this book is we are to strive to be a man or a woman of excellence. Ruth, I can guarantee you, Ruth had no idea that millions of people will be reading her story and drawing lessons from her life. If you were to meet her one day in heaven and ask her, tell me the three keys to success in your life, she would say, what are you talking about? Right? I just did what was required of me. Once I knew that Yahweh is the true God, once I knew that he is the only God, nothing else mattered to me. I wanted to please him. I wanted to live my life as, he was always, as if he was always with me, and he was. I wanted just to be a faithful follower of Christ, or Yahweh in this instance. And in the process of doing that, she became a woman of excellence, one with high integrity and character, one who was humble and submissive, one who obeyed God because she loved God. May that be true of you and me, that we would be striving to live as men and as women of excellence. Why? Because that is what is required from us. Sixthly and finally, as we've been looking at our theme, perhaps... You're wondering why am I repeating that theme so many times? 
it is to draw your attention to this point. God's purposes transcend our lifetime. As I thought more on how the book ends, you see a list of all the men in there. And out of the ten men that are there, we have a little more information on Boaz and David, right? But there's no indication in the text or the rest of the scriptures that they were even aware that they were part of God's grand plan of redemption. You know, they, they were just living faithfully in the generation that they were living in. You know, sometimes we live as if we're going to be here on this earth for eternity in our first life here. And you know, and I know that that is not true. We're so self-consumed so many times that we don't think that God is working out his plans and purposes. That we just came in in the last 30, 40 years on this earth. And truth be told, if Christ's coming is delayed, none of us will be here in the next 100 years. Stop, if you are consumed with thinking about yourself, stop thinking just about yourself. Stop being so self-consumed in other ways. God is eager to use you beyond your lifetime. I don't know when the last time you thought about this in this way. Perhaps you thought about it today. Perhaps you never thought about it this way. But the God that you and I believe in, he's a God that transcends generations. He's the one who existed when Adam was in the Garden of Eden. He's the one who existed when Boaz came onto the scene. He's the one who existed when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. He's the one who has existed the last 2,000 years. He exists right now and he will continue to exist throughout eternity. We are and we have the opportunity as his children, as a part of his family, to be a part of his plan. May it be said of us that we just did what was required of us to do. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for these lessons from this wonderful book. Uh, May we be like Boaz and and Ruth in the sense that we would be men and women of excellence. Lord, remind us that for those of us who claim him as our redeemer already, may our lives reflect that. May our lives be filled with thankfulness for this wonderful redeemer who gave his life as a ransom for us, as a ransom for me. May our life be marked by praise and worship to this great Redeemer. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.